his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, the Rotary District 7410 has an online auction underway, and we have the details. Also, we'll get details on COVID-19 from Dawn Webster and Dr. Helen Boucher. But first, we meet William Adler. He's with the Center for Democracy and Technology, and they're trying to improve voter confidence. Let's have you tell us a little bit about the center. What exactly happens there? We are a nonpartisan nonprofit working to ensure that technology is used in ways that promotes and protects individual rights. And that includes the right to vote in a way that's both accessible and secure. And my work focuses on elections. So I work to make sure that American elections are fair, accessible and secure. Well, this one certainly was a little bit on the different side. So what do you hope will come out of all of this that has happened, especially that you're going to be working on? Yeah, so the events of January 6th and the siege on the Capitol really make it clear that there's this crisis of trust in American democracy. And it's really unfortunate because in the midst of a pandemic, election officials did an incredible job running a secure election with massive voter turnout. And yet huge numbers of Americans don't think the election was free and fair. Now, a functioning democracy requires voters to have trust in the election system. And that's why President Biden should appoint a bipartisan commission to make sure that people trust and understand the system. And we just released a report elaborating on what this commission needs to look into and what it can do to try to build trust. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of that? Sure. Yeah. So there's always room to improve elections, even though this was one of the safest and most secure elections in our history. Um, First, Too many jurisdictions are still using paperless voting systems that are impossible to audit. And of those jurisdictions that do use paper ballots, not enough of them audit their processes and results. So, you know, as a good example, we can look at Georgia, which, um, you know, switched to systems that produce a paper trail. And that enabled them to recount their ballots uh, two times after the election. And and basically, no ballots changed. So that's the kind of confidence-boosting thing that uh, we need to see from other states and their too many states, uh, you know, still have yet to switch to systems that produce a paper trail. Second, the commission needs to think about the role of the media and tech companies in curbing the spread of dangerous disinformation, which fueled the attack on our nation's capital. It seems pretty clear that disinformation about elections is a danger to public safety, and we need to treat it like that and do everything we can to try and stop it. And finally, the commission should look at whether to make permanent the policy changes that some states made in response to the pandemic, like the expansion of absentee voting. 
Who do you think should make up the commission? I know you said bipartisan, but are you looking at more lawmakers, civilians? Where would the people come from in your estimation? Yeah, well, we think that this problem is is so big and so sprawling that it's going to need a really diverse set of commissioners on this commission. Um, you know, like I said, strong bipartisan leadership is going to be really critical. I think it's important to have election officials at the state, local, and federal level. It's important to have cybersecurity officials. It's important to have accessibility advocates, um, members of the media, members of social media. And it should um, look like America. It should be a diverse community because there are so many different factors in who has access to the vote and who has um, and who trusts the election. So we need to have representatives of, of uh, America's minority communities, marginalized communities, uh, disabled people. So it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of hands to really build up trust in our democracy the way that we need to. When we look at previous elections, nothing like this has ever happened before. Do you think maybe it had to do with the expansion of mail-in voting? Well, I mean, there have been um, uh, disasters in American elections before, right? If you look at 2000, there were so many different administrative factors that piled up and led to to that crisis, which was really um, substantial, as you know. Um, but, you know, we, America came together after 2000 and passed legislation, the Help America Vote Act of 2002, to, um, you know, try to address these problems. So, um, you know, it's not like we haven't faced crises in elections before, but, you know, if, if we come together and we're able to look at the facts on the ground and, and you know, try to understand that, then I think that we'll be able to make a change. You know, I think the, the biggest difference between now and 2000 is the Internet. Twitter and Facebook weren't around in 2000. Um, the Internet has been a huge vector of misinformation around things like mail-in voting, which we know are very secure ways to vote. But the Internet has allowed misinformation and intentional disinformation to spread like wildfire. And so that's really changed the environment that we operate in in terms of the factors that give people trust uh, or not in our election system. So um, I think we really need to have the commission look into that. That's a tough one because there are positives and there are negatives to the whole Internet, Twitter the situation where people are getting their information faster. Do you anticipate maybe coming up with a clearinghouse for information? And then how would you do that locally? On a national level, you might be able to do that. But what about on the local level? Because there's so much out there. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's something that we saw um, officials at all levels, the local all the way up to the federal level, try to do um, in 2020. So the um, at the federal level, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, had a program called Rumor Control, where they were trying to bust myths about election security as they happened. And that was, um, I mean, maybe you could call that a clearinghouse, but that was definitely a really um, powerful resource to point people to and be like, no, you know, this conspiracy theory isn't true. This is, um, you know, the, the, the federal agency that, you know, including Trump appointees are saying that this isn't true. Um, but, the, you know, the local officials really have a role to play, too, because people know their local officials and people trust their local uh, officials and in many cases have, have voted for them. And um, local election officials can be a really powerful, trusted source of good information about elections. And there's a lot of things that local officials can do, such as getting um, on social media, making sure that their 
Twitter and Facebook accounts are verified. So you get that little blue check that lets people know that you're trusted. Um, and, you know, just trying to flood the zone with really good information. Um, and that can go a long way towards, um, towards making it harder for false conspiracy theories to, to catch hold. Do you have any idea whether President Biden has looked at this suggestion or is even considering it? Uh, I'm not sure, but if if he does, it should be pretty soon because, you know, the next election is all always around the corner, and it's going to take time for this commission to do its work. It's and then after um, the committee, the commission makes recommendations. It's going to take time for um, election officials and media companies to implement those recommendations. So, um, you know, I really think that this is work that needs to start now. And do you have anything that you'd like our our audience to know that maybe we haven't touched on here? Well, um, you know, one thing that um, should change in Pennsylvania is um, there, there are laws that can change to, to help reduce the spread of misinformation by allowing election officials to count ballots early. So, you know, in some states, election officials were counting absentee ballots as they came in. But Pennsylvania is one of the few states where election officials aren't actually allowed to count absentee ballots until Election Day, which resulted in a delay in releasing the results. So when results from big counties were reported later, it led to all this misinformation about shady dealing. But it was completely expected that those results would come out late. Um, so states like Pennsylvania should really look into changing their laws to allow absentee votes to be counted as they come in to reduce the spread of misinformation. Because if Pennsylvanians keep wanting to vote by mail, there's no reason that those should just pile up in election offices without them being allowed to count them. So that's one thing that we think should, should change in Pennsylvania. Mr. Adler, I hope that you will keep us informed and let us know if it does get to that point so that we can let everybody know what is correct. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's William T. Adler. He's a senior technologist, elections and democracy with the Center for Democracy and Technology, working to form a commission to improve voter confidence. Next on Special Edition, we'll be talking the difference between illness symptoms and COVID-19 when Special Edition returns. Welcome back to Special Edition. Dawn Webster is a physician's assistant with MedExpress Urgent Care. And as you can imagine, they see a lot of different illnesses at a lot of different times of the year. So Dawn is going to give us a little bit of an overview of the difference between illness symptoms. With so many different things going on between we're still in flu season, we have COVID, we could have strep throat. Dawn, how do you know when it's time to actually go and get some help? Is there a way to tell the difference between one and the other? Sure. So really the only way to tell the difference between all the different winter illnesses we have it is to get help to go see your doctor. And unfortunately, even then, sometimes it's tough um, without testing just because they do have so many similarities. Can you give us some of those similarities? Because again, we hear so many different things, but uh, sometimes they say, oh no, that's not part of this. But then later they say, oh yeah, you might get that too. Ah, <laughs> Sure. So the biggest um, common symptoms between pretty much all of the winter viruses, which are, you know, influenza, COVID, the common cold, are um, cough, fever, shortness of breath, fatigue, sore throat, 
run of your stuffy nose, congestion, muscle pain, headache, and even some GI symptoms like vomiting or diarrhea. Oh my. So how do we know what we have? And again, you know, I know you said we have to, you should go and get tested, but of course, everyone's concerned about COVID. So you, do you call your doctor? Do you find out where they're giving tests? What do you do first? Sure. So if you do have a family doctor, then that would probably be easiest to call them. Let them know what symptoms you're having and see what they advise. If you're a young, healthy adult, they may tell you that, you know, Stay at home for a couple of days, monitor your symptoms, take over the counter medicine to help with your symptoms, and really just kind of see what happens. Unfortunately, young, um, healthy adults, a lot of times are the ones that just kind of have to ride it out because they are the young, healthy adults, and we don't want them coming in and potentially getting exposed to something worse. They're the ones that typically do better on their own. So the older or immunocompromised patient population, they're the ones that we we tend to worry a little bit more about. And we bring them in a little bit quicker. You know, we do want to listen to their heart and lungs. We do want to check their temperature and, you know, order an x-ray if we need to. But really the best place to start is probably to call your doctor if you have one. If you don't, then yeah, I would probably call an urgent care or a, um, or even, you know, a family practice or pediatrician in the area and see if they're accepting new patients. Well, that was going to be my next question. What age, I know you mentioned the fact that, you know, you're looking at older adults with compromised immune systems, but you mentioned the younger adults. How young is young? Because again, there's so much information out there that, Children can not get COVID, that they get a mild case. I mean, there's just too much information. So when, well, how would a parent know? Sure. So again, in kids, when they say kids don't get COVID, we're not really sure that they don't get COVID. We think that it may actually be that they get COVID. They just don't have any symptoms. We just don't know that they get it. Um, when they test them, sometimes they test negative, And we're not sure if it's because they just didn't you know, mount enough of an immune response to give us that positive on that test, or if they truly didn't have it. Because it's so new, it, it really is, it really is tough. But again, with kids, same thing. A lot of times when you call the pediatrician, they're going to ask you what symptoms they're having. If a kid has a fever, typically something's going on. If it's not COVID or the flu, then it could be something else that they do need antibiotics for, like an ear infection or strep throat. So a lot of times with kids, um, you know, if they have a fever, it lasts more than a couple of days or it's a little bit higher than we like, we want to see them also. And when I say kids, really anyone under the age of 12. So at MedExpress, when people come in to see you, what are you finding that, again, they, they come in, they have symptoms, and are you finding that? They need to go get tested for COVID or it is something that is is an influenza, a flu, a something like that. Right. So the good news is at MedExpress, we can check for both. We have tests, we have rapid and we can do send out tests for COVID. And then we also have a rapid influenza test. So if someone comes in with a fever and a cough, we're probably going to check them for both. Unless they say to us, hey, you know, my aunt had COVID and I was with her all weekend. You know, then we may just check her for COVID. Um, 
But most of the time, we're going to check them for both if they have the symptoms that kind of go with both of them. Now, the other thing I will say that's a pretty big difference, people with COVID, a, a lot of people with COVID, they have loss of taste and smell. And that is really one of the biggest symptoms that is only with COVID. People don't have that with the flu. They don't, I mean, they can sometimes have a stuffy nose and that, you know, will make them have a, a decrease in their smell and their taste. But with COVID, they truly can't taste or smell, you know, it, it really is quite um, interesting how big of a um, impact that has on them. So that's really the biggest defining factor that I've seen personally, um, you know, when seeing patients, if they have that, chances are it is COVID. And again, when we're talking about this, all of these different things together, um, people have had flu shots, people have had pneumonia shots, uh, with all of that, and then thinking about the COVID shot, is that causing concern to people who come in to see you? Um, well, a lot of people that are coming in, um, you know, the elderly, the immunocompromised, they do. They want the COVID shot. Um, and it's been tough. In Pennsylvania, you know, we've been having a hard time getting people, um, you know, registered. And there's, it's just really in such a high demand right now. Um, so yeah, people do want the COVID shot. They are concerned if they haven't gotten it yet or if they've only gotten one dose and they don't know if they're going to get that second dose in time. But the good news is I do think that, you know, it, it, we're on the right track now and that we will be able to get everyone vaccinated in the next few months who, who wants to be vaccinated. So I, I do think we're finally moving in the right direction. One thing that I don't think you mentioned was a sore throat. Is that in there anywhere? Yeah, absolutely. It can be. And that's the problem, you know, especially with COVID is every patient we see really has different symptoms. Some come in, you know, and they have the typical flu symptoms, the body aches, the fever, the chills, the cough. Some come in and they have cold symptoms, you know, congestion, sore throat. I mean, people just present so differently with it. And I think that that's one of the reasons, you know, that, that it is so hard and that it spreads so rapidly because some people have really minimal symptoms and if they're not feeling sick, then they're not going to, you know, stay home. So that's unfortunately one of the reasons it spreads so quickly. And when we're talking about, again, all of the different types of viruses that go around and, and is there an end sometime? Are we looking forward to spring? And then we'll have to talk about allergies. <laughs> right. I sure hope so. Yeah. So there's, you know, one of the articles I read yesterday did say, you know, with so many people having it um, in the past couple months, and finally, so many people starting to get vaccinated that we really, you know, should see an end to it soon. Um, you know, and it can change and different strands are coming. And you know, I, I guess that the future truly is unknown, but um, from from what I've been reading, there there does seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel, thank goodness. That's almost like the flu. When you're getting your flu shot, they look a year ahead, isn't it? That they are trying yes. to decide what's going to come down the, down the flu yep. pike? Yes, and that's why every year the flu shot is different. And um, there's multiple different flu strains in the flu shot. Because they are hoping that, you know, the one that we see in our area is in there. 
sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So unfortunately, it's one of those things we just, we can just do our best. All right, Dawn, I'm going to let you wrap it up for our listeners today. Give us that good advice when it comes to getting the sniffles, getting a headache, getting the body aches or whatever. What do we do? Sure. So the best way to stay healthy is to wash your hands as much as you can. Um, If you don't have a sink, soap, and water in front of you, use hand sanitizer. If you are out in public, you're at the grocery store, when you're done, again, utilize that hand sanitizer as soon as you get in your car. Um, The CDC still recommends wearing a mask in public. So that's also some good advice until, um, you know, we get our COVID numbers under control a little bit better. Um, and if you can get the COVID vaccine, uh, get your flu shot if you haven't, and really just, you know, do your best. And when do we see the doctor? If you start to have symptoms that are lasting more than a couple days, um, any type of shortness of breath, um, a high fever that does not go down with Tylenol or Motrin, those are some, you know, some indicators to give your doctor a call. Dawn Webster, physician's assistant with MedExpress Urgent Care, looking at the difference between illness symptoms. Now we welcome Dr. Helen Boucher. She is chief of the Division of Geographic Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Tufts Medical Center. She's talking COVID-19 and vaccines. Well, I uh, have the privilege of leading uh, a large division of over 30 faculty in infectious diseases and also our efforts across our healthcare system. And as you can well imagine, for the last year, now more than a year, my efforts have largely been focused on COVID, uh, treating patients, working on all of our testing and prevention measures, and now focusing on vaccination rollout. And that vaccination rollout has been getting an awful lot of discussion. I know here in Pennsylvania, our governor talking about the need for the vaccines from your perspective, how do you look at all this? Well, I look at it as that we are um, hopefully in the last big push through the surge upon a surge and thankfully have two things that are going to help us get through it. The first is a vaccine that is 95% effective. And the second are the mitigation measures that we know work, that wearing a mask, avoiding crowds, washing our hands, staying home when we're sick. Uh, those measures work. And we're going to have to continue to use them until we get enough people vaccinated that this virus will stop spreading. Let's talk a little bit about the vaccination itself, because, again, there have been a lot of very high profile people who have demonstrated that they have gotten the vaccine on television and they're getting the word out there. But what do you say to those who are still concerned about the vaccine and possible side effects? Yeah, well, you know, these concerns are very much understandable. And I think, you know, there's a couple of pieces of of good news that we can offer. So the vaccines have been studied incredibly rigorously in many, many thousands, right? Over 44,000 for one, over 37,000 for another. Uh, And all of the data has been vetted externally at the level of the FDA and the CDC and during the trials by external experts. So we know that the data about efficacy and safety are are robust and credible. And then now we have experience in many millions who've received the vaccines and we haven't seen any new or really unexpected side effects. The side effects are largely mild, uh, muscle aches, maybe a low fever for one to two days, 
things that are a small price to pay for a life saved. One of the things that we're also hearing is when it comes to side effects that, and I, uh, you tell me whether it's true or false, but um, one of the things is that if you don't have any side effects, maybe it's not working as well as it did if you did get some? Yeah, well, that, that's interesting, right? The side effects are related to what we call immune activation, the immune system working. So in, in many ways, it's kind of a good sign to get side effects. We also see them more often in younger people who tend to have more robust immune systems. But the good news is, is that we know the effectiveness is just as good, that 95% in older folks and folks who have fewer side effects. So I don't think you need to worry if you don't get the side effects. When we're talking about the the shots as well, um, there's been a lot of concern as far as the rollout is is coming along. And there are a lot of people who are finding it. I know in our area, just uh, looking for myself to see what I could find, that there have been um, some places to sign up online where you're in line with over 5,000 other people. How, how about the rollout, Dr. Boucher? Is it... Is that going to make a difference in, because again, you're also talking about one vaccine followed by a second vaccine. So a lot of people who are having a hard time getting the first one might not get it because they're afraid that they won't get the second one. Yeah. So Paula, you know, as is happening in Scranton, it's happening all over the country that the rollout is a little bit bumpy. And I think that you know, the notion of vaccinating 330 million Americans is a huge, huge undertaking. Again, I think there is good news that, you know, just as recently as yesterday, President Biden announced the purchase of 200 million additional doses of these two mRNA vaccines. We also have another vaccine hopefully coming, uh, the J.J. Johnson vaccine. We hope to see data next week. And I think that it will get smoother as time goes along. I think a lot of the efforts that are being made in causing the slow start are to ensure that that second dose is available. So I would encourage people not to worry about that and to accept the vaccine when it's offered and to be faithful and reassured that that second dose, that every measure is being taken to ensure that that second dose will be there when you need it. And when we're talking about the whole idea of those who need the vaccine, they're is also concerned that some people may not get it because they aren't going to be readily easy to get if they're at a different location and some people have mobility issues. Have you heard anything about that? Well, you know, there is a lot of concern, Paul, about making sure that we uh, provide access to vaccination for the people who need it most, right? We know that there are disparities in that COVID affects a disproportionate number of people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged and people of color. So a lot of efforts are being made both from the federal down to the state level to really do that outreach, to provide vaccines in community health centers, nursing homes, places where people are, to meet people where they are so that people who do have things like mobility issues don't have to worry that they won't have access to that vaccine. Along the same lines, uh, one of the other things that has come to light in recent days is the fact that there are so many people that are trying to get the vaccine that sometimes there have been reports of, well, why is this person getting it and I'm not getting it? And is that a concern? Well, you know, I understand you know, where those concerns are coming from. I think, again, the good news is, is that we have 
every reason to believe now, based on information from as recently as yesterday, that there's going to be enough vaccine to vaccinate everybody. We're just going to need to be patient during this period of getting it out there. And, you know, it will take a few months to get the whole population vaccinated. And so that's why it's really important that we double down on those mitigation measures, masking up whenever we're with anyone with whom we don't live, washing our hands, watching our distance, um, not going to work or school when we're sick. These are very, very important measures that work and that will get us through until enough people have been vaccinated the virus will stop spreading. And then there's also been the, well, I already had COVID, so I guess that means I don't need the vaccine. Well, that's, you know, an important point for us to address. So we, we understand, and, and it's quite clear now, that there is some immunity provided from natural infection, right, for at least three months, maybe longer. But it's, it's not 100% that it's as robust as the vaccine. So we are encouraging folks who've had covid to get the vaccine uh, as soon as they're released from isolation. And of course, the reason we're doing all this is so that no more people will get the disease and we'll be able to prevent further disease. Also, there have been people who have said, I tested positive for COVID, but I don't have any symptoms. So maybe I don't need it either. Right. I would say the same thing, whether you've tested positive or been sick, we still very much encourage you to become, to get vaccinated when it's offered. Dr. Boucher, as we're wrapping up here, is there anything that you would like to leave with our listeners so that they are feeling comfortable about all this that's happening? Yeah, you know, I would say that you know we still have some dark days ahead, but there is light at the end of this tunnel. If we can hang in there for the next several weeks, we're going to get to a better place and we're going to get beyond this back to more normal life. If you want to get more information, uh, you can check out our website, which is www.fightinfectiousdisease.org slash vaccination. Uh, there's some nice um, infographics and other information for you and your family. Dr. Helen Boucher, Chief of the Division of Geographic Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. Now, don't go away. Coming up next, are you in the mood for an online auction? We have one to tell you about on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. Rotary District 7410 currently has an online silent auction underway, and you have a few more days if you would like to take part. They're trying to raise funds for many of their local programs as well as continuing their efforts to eradicate polio with Rotary International. There are so many great items to bid on. They include everything from vacation stays to sports packages and, of course, a whole host of great gift certificates. Marsha Lockman is here to tell us all about it. And Marsha, maybe you can start by telling us who you're with. I'm with the Rotary District 7410. So we're a district of Rotary International. Our district covers 10 counties in Pennsylvania. So we go from Wellsboro to the New York border um, around 81, and then we go out to Milford, Matamoros, down to Jim Thorpe and Stroudsburg, Hazleton, and then, of course, the Wilkes-Barre, Scranton area. So we cover quite a distance. And, of course, with the pandemic this year, almost many, many of our fundraisers where we have public gatherings and wine fests and brew fests and you name it, all of those have been canceled from time to time throughout the pandemic. So in order to be able to raise funds for our 
community and world projects and for our foundation and to end polio, we had to think of a new way to do that. And our online auction is the way we've chosen to try to make up the difference where we've lost abilities to do our fundraisers. <laughs> it's, so um, It's been tough. Travel- <laughs> Oh, it's been tough. It's been tough. Many of the Rotary Clubs have found different ways to rebound, but there certainly has been a shortfall in our ability to run our normal fundraisers that the clubs do in their various areas. So we've gathered together, and as a group of 42 clubs, we've tried to come up with a variety of items in the silent auction, donations from various places, so that we can actually raise the funds we need to put towards foundation and towards our commitment to end polio around the world. And we've so that's talked kind about of where we are. We've talked about uh, that um, and and how close of a similarity it is to the everything that's been happening with COVID, because the uh, now we're into the inoculation phase, and that's that's what Rotarians really do. That's right. We uh, One of our key areas of focus is disease prevention and cure. And our, our method for going after polio is something that has been copied for many of the disease prevention and cure activities around the world, including what we're doing in various different foreign countries using the same model for getting the COVID vaccines out there and doing the campaigns in some of the smaller communities around the world. Not so much in the U.S. because we're a little bit more developed and we have our own <laughs> methodologies that we try to work on. But certainly where we're in rural communities and around the world where they have used that model of community organization to get inoculations done for polio, they'll be using that for COVID as well. So whoever would have thought all of that would have come from Rotary? Yes. Yes, it's been a 40-year development process. Rotary kicked it off in the Philippines and uh, it spread throughout the world and gained partners in every country and the public health of every country, as well as with the CDC, uh, the World Health Organization, and of course, with the help of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we continue to, to raise funds and commit funds for uh, sanitation surveillance for the polio virus and for any new um, scientific methods that we need to surveil for the virus and make sure that the vaccines are available to finish the job. We're down to two countries now. In August, um, in August, all of Africa was declared polio free after being free of the wild polio virus for three years. And now we have Pakistan and Afghanistan to go. And it's pretty remarkable to go from, you know, 300,000 new cases a year down to maybe a dozen to a hundred cases a year. Wow. That is, yeah. that is something. So when people talk about Rotary, I know they, oh, well, they get together once a week and have lunch, but you're actually <laughs> doing a lot more than that. <laughs> yes. Yes. All of the clubs, every club is rather unique. They have a key passion, whether it be um, youth development or literacy programs or economic development or support for different kinds of community activities. Um, Every club does something locally. Probably 75% of what they do is local projects, local funding, scholarships, education, dictionary projects, you name it. Um, Coats for kids, shopping trips, building beds, supporting food banks. 
all those kinds of things in the local communities, about 75% of what they do. And then we have a certain percentage that we all do to support international peace and conflict resolution in the seven areas of focus, which include the disease prevention and cure, water and sanitation, hygiene, um, infants and, and mothers, um, literacy programs around the world, and uh, microeconomic development, um, those types of things. So wow. um, it's, it's a very broad stroke. There are 1.2 million active Rotarians around the world. And uh, we all um, welcome Rotarians from any part of the world, and we work together on lots of projects. That's probably um, the best part, is that everybody yeah. works together. That's right. That's right. So this effort is, is our um, Rotary Auction. It, it brings us a, an effort to raise the funds so that we can support the Rotary Foundation. And the Rotary Foundation provides funds for Rotary-driven projects in local communities and around the world. So you so have that's, about that's our key. I'm I'm looking at your I'm looking at the web page here and we're going to give that uh, information out in just a little bit. So we have about 18 and then there's something called a passport rotary and I'm not sure who they are. Well, the passport rotary um, is our our work to bring people together online. So that particular club meets online and they have a commitment to help the clubs in the district. So if there's a project that somebody in the Dallas club is running, they can ask members of the Passport Club to come and assist them with the project um, or to assist them with a fundraiser. But the primary way that the Passport Club meets is online. So they don't really have like a restaurant where they go to lunch. They do an online meeting. Well, you might have just a whole group of people listening now going, wow, I could do this online. That's great. Because that that seems the way that things are. So looking at the whole list of rotaries that you have involved in this silent auction, where will the funds go? Do you divide them between each one of these rotaries or does it go into a, a big pot or how will that work? Well, what would, our first our first goal is to raise funds to go to the foundation, and there's a split between the annual fund and our polio fund that we have designed based on our traditional um, support for those two funds, the annual fund and the polio fund. The funds from the annual fund become available for us to write grants against. And, of course, the polio fund raises the money for surveillance and for the vaccines and for support of the distribution of vaccines around the world right now. That's primarily in Afghanistan and Pakistan, although there are still immunization projects going um, elsewhere in the world. But those are the two primary ones we have to get rid of the wild polio virus in. So that that's where the primary funds are going to be going to. And the bulk of it will go to the annual fund, which brings project money available to us in grants for local projects and for us to partner with other countries to do global grants. Now, we could do a global grant in our own district with a partner from somewhere else. In fact, for the pandemic, we have done that with a partner in Canada. We got global funds for um, early childhood education in Monroe County. So that was quite different for us. Most of the time, people think of a global grant and a world project 
somewhere else, but we can actually do them in the United States. We can partner and do one in Canada. Um, we could do one with the Bahamas. We could do them anywhere between partnering with clubs in two countries. See, and I think sometimes people, before they will get involved, although the items that you have that I've seen here kind of makes, I think, anybody want to get involved. Uh, But just in case, they always like to know where the funds are going so that they know exactly where their dollars are going. So now we have this silent auction and it is available again online. That's right. That's right. It's at trellis.org slash rotary auction, and it'll pop up. And, and there's pictures from all of our local projects on there, as well as our sponsors. Um, and then the auction items, which are fun. Some of them are very interesting and different. So um, they're kind of fun and uh, something for everybody that's out there. Um, I, I can't uh, begin to tell you some of the items that are out there, but we have haircuts and color and we have stone and we have services. There's a will out there for a couple uh, to bid on for from one of the uh, attorneys. So there's a number of things out there that are quite interesting and different. Oh, you haven't mentioned my favorite, the one from Gertrude Hawk for $25 of chocolate a month. <laughs> yeah, that's the chocoholic dream, $25 a month of chocolate for the whole year. Oh, so that's quite a value. That that's is quite a value. That is quite a value. Yeah. I, I was I was paying attention and trying to figure out how I bid on that while I'm sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's well worth it because um, if you if you can get that one, if you win the bid on that one, you really have quite a, a something to bring home. That's for sure. <laughs> you have a lot of new friends too. So how does it all yeah, work? Lots of friends. How do you go? How does it start? How do you bid on something? Well, you um, you go into the auction, and when you bid on something, it'll ask for your information, and you, you register so you have your name and your email address and that kind of information. If you win the bid, um, we're going to close all the bids out March 14th, and then if you win the bid, then you use a credit card to pay for it. It's that easy. And then you contact the, the winner via email. Right. The, anytime you bid, so like, let's say I bid on one of, let's say I bid on the Gertrude Hawk chocolate and then you overbid me, I'll get an email that says, hey, you've been overbid. Oh. <laughs> so I can go back in and challenge your bid by bidding more. So you, you will be kept notified of whether your bid is leading bid or whether you need to go back in and decide whether you want to put some more money on it or whether whether you just say, uh, I guess it's $25 of a month that I should probably not be eating, but, (laughs) but you leave it up to you. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It would be your decision at that point. So, but you'll know whether somebody's overbid you and you go back in and make another bid. So, so it's that easy. So the auction's already underway because I do see on the site here that there have been some bids that have been made on some of the items already. And you said it's going until when? March 14th. That's when the that's when you're going to close it down and decide, make the decisions who wins. Yep. Based on the, the highest bidder on the last bid, just like you would in a regular silent auction. The last one on there at the highest bid. We're going to get it. Wow. This is, this is, oh, that we've got seats to the rail riders games. There's yep. all yep. kinds of things on here. These are great. Yeah. Scott's green. I don't know who, who knows about Scott's green, but it's a nice 
nine hole executive course has a, a summer membership on there. So that's kind of nice. That's a $300 value for a nine hole executive course. Very easy to play and lots of fun. So that's a nice little value. Um, there's a number of wineries that are out there with items on there. So that's kind of nice. Um, yeah, there's golf tournaments out there. Tickets for that. Tickets for the Dallas Wine Fest. That's kind of nice. And the, the Tunkhannock. And the Jim so, Thorpe Rotary Ghost Tour. Yeah. There's 10 tickets out there for that. That yeah. sounds great. Maybe the folks who from Mountaintop, if they do the train to Jim Thorpe, you can just all go on the... I'm, I'm setting all this up for myself. I'm having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> Now, are all of the items, if someone was hearing this today and said, oh, gee, Marsha, I think I have something that would be really cool to to get involved and donate, is is all that part closed? No, we can add items. Um, we, we thought we would add them right up to about the 10th of March, and then we, we'd have to stop adding. But, yeah, somebody has something that they can donate to the auction. Um, they could contact me and we can talk it over and we'll get a, we'll find a way to do that. That's great. That is, do you have any idea what you're hoping to raise? Well, our total for the year, we're hoping to raise 30,000 for polio and we're 110,000 for the annual fund. And you can see on the page that we already had started the fundraising even before we launched the auction. So we have some funds in there already, but we still have to keep going. And we'll probably have a couple more things going on later in the year as well to support that um, beyond the auction. But anything we can get the annual fund into polio is good money. Um, Rotary Foundation is a four-star charity on Charity Navigator and has been for the last 13 years. So we return 92 cents of every dollar in projects. And they're all managed by Rotarians, very ethically managed. So um, it's a good place to, to donate to, and it's a great place to go to an auction and support the cause. Well, when I logged on, the first thing you see here is the $66,993. And I thought, wow, am I late? They've, they've got all that, all that from that. But that's, that's what you're talking about as far as the other things that have gone on to raise funds. Right. So some of that has come from the auction or, or an estimate from the auction or donations because people can go on that auction site and just make a straight up donation if they want to. So they can do that, too. So we, we're taking donations all the time. And, of course, Rotarians are personally involved in making contributions to the foundation um, and donating. So we want to make sure we're building on the funds. And we're building on the cause, so we're adding as we go, as much as we can obtain from the auction. That's great, and we will keep going for the rest of the rotary year. Oh, and I just saw something else here now. You can sign up, and the computer will automatically bid for you in your choice of dollar increments? (laughs) That's interesting, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think we're... What was that address again, Marcia? It is... Trellis.org, and I'll spell it, T-R-E-L-L-I-S dot org slash Rotary Auction. Okay. And that'll get you there. Oh, wow. And it's Rotary District 7410. That's right. We're the Northeast Pennsylvania, 10 counties, 1,100 Rotarians, and uh, we do projects locally as well as around the world. So we are really looking to support 
our foundation and to make sure we have project funds for future years. And anything else, Marcia, that you think maybe we've left out that you would like to add to uh, all of the information? Well, when people go out there and take a look around at all the things that are being done by Rotarians, we're always looking for those people who want to be humanitarians and want to work on projects in their community and around the world. So if they find something interesting there, there's also, I think, I believe there's a tab there that they can take a look at rotary.org itself and see all the things that Rotary does around the world. If they're interested, there is a place on rotary.org to put their name in for consideration for membership, and we get leads for membership that way as well. That's Rotary District 7410 Foundation Chair Marsha Lockman with all the details of the online auction. And, of course, you can log on to trellis.org slash rotary auction. That's trellis, T-R-E-L-L-I-S dot org slash rotary auction. And good luck. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications.